Turn with me to Psalm 85 tonight. Psalm 85. In our study of prayer, we must not neglect the topic, the great need of praying for revival. What a beautiful psalm this is, and it is a psalm of hope. For when we read the prayers of those who've gone on before us, we can be encouraged to to pray these prayers. And if it was God's will to revive his people in days of old, surely, surely God is interested in personal and corporate revival. And yes, national revival. Let us not think that because the days are dark or that the foundations seem to be eroding or that there are moves at hand to rewrite history and rewrite the future, that, that God is not still sovereign and he is not still reigning supreme and working his perfect will, bringing things to exactly the place where he wants them to be. And I feel more and more impressed in these days to encourage us as a people here at Glen Iris and to encourage God's people to pray for a third great awakening. May it be pleased to the Lord, pleasing to the triune Godhead, to bless his people once again, for in blessing his people, our nation will be blessed and our world will be blessed. Psalm 85, Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sins, Selah. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him and that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. What a prayer. It is as if we wrote it a few moments ago before we came into the house of God. It is so up-to-date. It is so relevant. And I I want to emphasize in verse 6, Will thou not revive us again, again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Most Bible teachers believe that Psalm 85 was written after the children of Israel had returned back home to Jerusalem after their long captivity in Babylon. All around them was the strong debris and the rubble everywhere of their once glorious city. As far as the eye could see, the ruins were everywhere, desolation and demolition. 
Their great buildings lay in ruin. The Babylonians had done a thorough job for when they came and conquered a people, they left them absolutely helpless. And as was their custom, they would take the brightest and best captive, those who could be productive in their government and in their land, builders and scientists and men of learning and uh, the best, the cream of the crop, and they would leave behind the, in the, the homeland the, 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 the halt, the maimed, those who would, could not rise up and uh, join in revolt against them. They would leave those there in Jerusalem, in the, the, the Holy Land, who couldn't do anything, and then they would import others, uh, undesirable people of equal rank, who couldn't do anything either to populate the place, and they took the best into captivity. The glorious temple of God lay in a heap. Gone was the golden overlay. Gone was its beautiful, towering presence. The wall encircling the city was gone. Jerusalem lay waste. Seventy years of weeds and undergrowth took over everything. Trees sprouted where the streets had once been and courtyards had been laid. There was a tremendous work to be done. Everywhere you could see it was almost insurmountable. How could we ever rebuild? How could this ever be restored? How could this mess ever be brought back to its former glory? As we read the psalm, we notice gladness in the first three verses. Gladness? We see gloom in verses 4 through 7. We notice in verse 1, though, the favor of God. Thou hast brought us back the captivity of Jacob. The land without the people was like a body without a soul. The land without its people had returned to the wild. Now with the people back, the land could undergo a resurrection, a rebuilding. A revival. God had been gracious. He had heard Daniel's pleading prayers. He had kept his word given to Jeremiah. He had brought his people back home. Notice that the Holy Spirit records that God brought back the captivity of Jacob. That's curious, isn't it? Not the captivity of Israel, but the captivity of Jacob. You may say, well, I thought that Jacob's name, as we've studied, was changed to Israel. I thought Jacob and Israel were one and the same. So what, why the, the sig- signification of God has brought back the captivity of Jacob? Always ask questions like that when you're reading the scriptures because there are answers. The name Jacob refers to God's people's weakness. It is not Israel, the prince that has returned, that has returned in all of his strength and power with God and with men, but Jacob, weak Jacob. It is a remnant. It is a a part of the whole. It is not its former glory. It was but a feeble remnant that found its way back to the promised land. The majority, do you realize unbelievably, that the majority of the Jews had no desire to return back home at all. They wanted to stay 
in Babylon. Seventy years is a long time. I'm not going to ask someone who could stand up and show us what 70 looks like. But I will tell you this. Think back 70 years in our nation, how much has changed. A generation were born and raised, two or three generations in Babylon, who knew nothing of the old homeland. And it was just a dusty memory. And of course they heard about the temple and all, but there was nothing there to go back to. They had been born in Babylon. They had been reared there. All they knew was the way of proud Babylonians. They had discovered in Babylon a talent for making money that never left God's people. Like so many people in our day, they preferred Babylon with all of its sophistication, its library, its hanging gardens, its architectural wonders. Babylon was the premier city on earth. Why would you want to go back to Podunk Hollow when you were living in Babylon? The world, its prosperity compared to Canaan. Canaan with its problems. But in spite of it all, there was a remnant. Praise the Lord, there always is a remnant. And they were back home. God had restored them and brought them out of captivity. It was a miracle that proud Babylon would let them go to come back home, this remnant. Verse 2 tells us that God had done two things for the nation. He had forgiven their iniquity and he had covered all their sin. These are two glorious teachings, beautiful doctrines that every believer ought to know and cherish. He had forgiven their iniquity covered their sin. The word iniquity comes from a Hebrew word meaning to be bent or crooked. In fact, when we refer to someone as being crooked, we mean mean and deceitful and a bad businessman or someone that cannot be trusted. We, by nature, are crooked. My daddy used to say, if someone, that man is as crooked as a dog's hind leg. And I knew by that that his estimation of him, that he was the lowest of the low. Don't do business with him. He cannot be trusted. It is a word that vividly describes the history of Israel from the time of the conquest to the time of the captivities. When you read the inspired record in Kings and in Chronicles, you see just how perverse the nation was. Now, we think of how horrible it was for Israel to be deported and what happened to Daniel and the, 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 the Hebrew children and the, the Babylonian uh, captivity and Babylon conquering uh, Jerusalem and, and all that it did, but, but it was deserved. Repeatedly, they, they ran back repeatedly to the most horrible forms of idolatry. Oh, they knew the one true God. They'd been given the oracles of God, the word of God. They had no excuse. Yet they'd never fully obeyed the Lord to kill and to, to drive out the enemy. And so those enemies became snares. They intermarried with the pagans and, and adopted their, their idolatry. You become like what you love. We need to remember that in our own lives. Those things that allure us and we love, we will become like those things, our people. Cycles of good and sinful kings continue on and on. The Babylonian captivity took, captivity took care of all that once and for all, didn't it? 
because they were so addicted to idolatry, God said, okay, I'll show you idolatry. You want to dabble in that? You want that? I'll give you that. Be careful of what you yearn for. Be careful of what you lust after. God disciplined his people by allowing them to be taken captive to the most idolatrous nation on the face of the earth. The epitome of idolatry was Babylon. God's discipline worked. The psalmist says here that his people have been cured. God has done a work in their heart while they're in Babylon. He had forgiven his people. The word here in verse 2 has for forgiven means to clear away. Their idolatries had been forgiven, had been cleared away, taken away. Let me ask you as we seek God's face for revival, as we're studying prayer and specifically prayer for revival, has he cleared away all the things in your life that has displaced him? We can talk about Israel and Babylon and idolatry, and it just becomes textbook in a history lesson until we bring it home to his church today and to my life and to your life this evening. And again, I ask, has God cleared away the idols that you love? All the vain things that charm me the most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Secondly, the psalmist says in verse 2 that God has covered all their sins he's cleared away their sins and he's covered their sin here the word sin is to miss the mark to come short and it's clearly taught in the verse all have sinned and come short of the glory of god that's the word for sin here the word for covered means here concealed these two things happen symbolically in israel on the day of atonement god always illustrates his truth When he gives us something to know or to do or to believe or to practice, he gives us a vivid picture of what it looks like. Isn't he gracious that way? That's why we study Leviticus and and the, the sacrifices because all of those have a picture of what Christ was to do and we look back and see how that he has done. Two goats were used in the on the Day of Atonement. One was called the scapegoat. And upon the head of the scapegoat the, the sins and the iniquities of the people was symbolically transferred. The priest would touch the head of the scapegoat, symbolically transferring their sins to the scapegoat. It was then put into the hands of a man who led the scapegoat pitifully out into the wilderness where it was set free to wander alone, forlorn, lost, and helpless to the ravages of the wild. The other goat, there were two. The other goat was slaughtered, mercilessly, pitifully slaughtered. And its blood was taken by the high priest into the the Holy of Holies. And there, in a bloody ceremony, we cannot imagine the gore and the blood of the sacrificial system. Neither can we Imagine the blood and the gore at Calvary where he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. His visage was marred more than any man's, the writer Isaiah tells us. 
the slaughtered goat's blood was taken and sprinkled on and before and all over the sacred ark. In this way, the sin of the nation was concealed, covered up, if you will, for another year. That is what the word atonement means. And so we have this so beautifully described for us, the the doctrines of justification and 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 atonement. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people and hast covered all their sin. Selah, think about that. Stop, pause, and meditate on that. This ceremony pointedly looked forward to Calvary, where sins would not just be carried away and not just be covered up. Calvary was not just a cover-up, a temporary fix, as we often do when there are problems, and put a Band-Aid on them or turn over a new leaf or paint a wall that needs to be torn out and replaced, those things that we do. Calvary was no quick-fix, cover-up, temporary dealing with sin like the Old Testament sacrifices were. But it was where the omniscient and omnipotent Godhead would will them out of existence. Can you imagine that? That that God who knows everything purposefully forgets and wills out of existence the sins that he covers and and, and pays for and, and, and deals with at Calvary. Praise his name. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That's what happened at Calvary. God had turned away his wrath. And remember, the Bible says God is angry at the wicked every day. He is not just upset at people's sins or bothered by it like you would swat at a gnat. The anger of a holy God, the volcanic anger of an almighty holy God is boiling at the sin of the wicked every day. God had turned away his wrath and his fierce anger from his people. They had provoked him. Can you imagine provoking the Holy One? Numbers tells us they provoked him in the wilderness, they provoked God. They had rejected his messengers, prophet after prophet, preacher after preacher. They absolutely disregarded. They had wallowed in their filth. Over and over at the close of the book of Kings, we read of the fierceness of God's wrath. Manasseh's 50-year reign was a period of utter vileness. The cruelest forms of child sacrifice were practiced in Israel. Homosexuals were given free reign to practice their abominations in Israel. Pornography was elevated to the status of the national religion in their worship. All of this had carried the nation beyond the hope of reform or revival. God's answer to such a state of national affairs is always, always, judgment but God had stayed his wrath and the fierceness of his anger it is at this point in the psalm that the writer changes his tone from thou hast to thou wilt what you have done and what you will do will you be angry with us forever what a question it's a pitiful question isn't it 
it's a question that, that has such wonder and, 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 and hopelessness to it in and of itself. Are you going to be angry with us forever? Will you draw out your anger to all generations, to our children and our children's children? Will you not? Won't you? Will you not, O oh God of mercy, will you not revive us again? Most of the nation had chosen to be voluntary exiles and had turned to the place of their captivity and bondage as their homeland. Can you imagine? And sadly, most of God's people have taken the world instead of the Lord. And they love the world. Worldliness is so ingrained in God's people that they really don't want anything else. When you speak of revival and, and heart-wrenching and heart-searching and forsaking of sin and laying off any luxury or way of life, we go for the cloak of justification and explaining it away. And quite frankly, it seems as if most of God's people who name the name of Christ turn their ear to it at all. As many of those in, uh, of God's people were in Babylon, they were just saying, we're not, we, don't want, we don't want that. We don't want that. It was an insult to God. Those that had come home faced the insurmountable task of rebuilding the rubble. Can you sense how they felt as they entered the once glorious city of God? At one time, rulers from all over the earth came to behold the city. The queen of Sheba came to see Solomon's house, and the house he had built for his God. And what was her report when she got back home? The half has not been told. The splendors of that place, that only God could have favored that place and those people in such a way, with such wisdom and such power and might and and the visible sign of it all was the, the glorious temple and the wealth of Solomon. You see, God had blessed Solomon and made him wealthy, not because of Solomon, but to show off his glory singularly in that place to that man so that all other nations on earth could come and say, My, the God of the Hebrews is the creator God of the universe. He is, only God could do this. The glamour of being a pioneer of rebuilding the broken walls in the promised land for the coming Messiah soon wore off. I mean, you don't have to do the back-breaking work of moving stones the size of a car to say, you know what, this is, this is not so romantic after all. The harsh reality, the, the back-breaking work, the, the economic hardship, the hostile neighbors, all these things soon turn the gladness into gloom. It does not take us long to forget God's mercies to us. Have you noticed that? This nation is but 200 years old. Just a little over 200 plus years. A handful of people came, and I mean, no way, no way please don't misunderstand me, equating America with Israel. I'm just pointing out how soon we have forgotten what the almighty hand of God has done in this place. William Bradford and the, the Puritans, when they, when he wrote in his journal and he wrote in his diary, he said, oh, how, and I'm paraphrasing here, how blessed we have been in the providence of God to bring us to these very shores. And 
how he's watched over us and blessed us. And with 50 years, they'd established thriving cities and in the Ivy League schools that we now are now all, all, all but just a semblance, no, nothing near, nothing at all what our, those Puritans founded them to be. And yet they're still the citadels of, of education and, and pride in our nation. All goes back to a handful of people on a borrowed ship and the blessing of God. It doesn't take long, though, for us to forget where God has brought us from. From that little handful of people to the world power that our nation grew to be. And so, but I want to bring it back closer to home, not America, but to you and to me as God's people and to Glen Iris Baptist Church, those that we know. So we slip back into lethargy, gloom, and depression. Finally, God's people got to the place, let others do the building. We're tired. Let others pave the way. Life is too hard for us. No one has to get it, has it quite as bad as we do. That old uh, self-talk that even God's people are guilty of. And so the awesome task, the privilege, the glory of being the remnant of God, of being allowed to be, go back to the land, that those people that God would choose and use to rebuild his nation and his kingdom limps along while the remnant mourns and licks its wounds and the majority remains in Babylon. The psalmist sees the real heart of the matter in verse 4. Turn us, O God, of our salvation. That's repent, repentance. And we see here what the biblical definition of repentance is. It is turning away from something and to someone. But that turning is a gift from God himself. God must turn us and we'll be turned. We might put it this way, though you might not have ever formed it in this way. Repent us, O Lord. Turn us. Cause us to mend our ways. Help us to do what we're not even willing to do ourselves. There has to be a turning to God. And that turning to God has to be a work of God himself in our hearts. Do you see in praying for revival, we must pray for the gift of of repentance. Verse 3 tells us that God has turned. Turn us, O God. And then in verse 3 he says, Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Now his people must turn. God has turned. Has he not shown favor to the remnant and allowed them to get back to the land safely? Has he not promised to rebuild and to help them? Now they must turn. It's a two-sided coin. God has relented. God has given us a space. Now it's up to us to repent in the space that God has given us. We have a space of time here, folks. We have a window of time. A space of repentance. Turn us, O God. Now we must turn. Without a nationwide turning to God, the psalmist saw no hope for the future. I mean, things are bleak, aren't they? The rubble, the lack of energy, the ragtag group of people who've come back to do the work, the majority back in worldly Babylon, 
we can curse the majority until we die, but the majority is going to be what they are. What, is, what about the remnant? The only people that can repent are the remnant. And so it is with this church today. As we look around us for all of our building and numbers and programs and luxury and, and, and the, as God describes, our Lord describes to the Laodicean church, the church is flagging along today, limping along like a car with three wheels or like a luxurious car, a limousine with a flat tire flapping down the freeway. Our influence is waning. Jeremiah 8.20 laments the sad condition of this hour. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. But there was no real national repentance. The Jews who, who chose to live abroad, continued to live abroad, wandering further and further away. They prospered in their chosen ways in the commercial life and the, what they learned in Babylon. They found their home and settled down in Egypt, in Persia, in Greece, in Spain, in Rome, throughout the world. Those who'd returned to their true homeland in Palestine adopted the formalism of what became the Pharisees and the skepticism of the Sadducees. At last, the prophet Malachi raises his voice. Isn't it a grace that God gives a voice to his men, to his prophets? What a gift God's prophets are to his people in every age. Would you thank God for the prophets of this day who are just a voice crying in the wilderness? Alas, the, the prophet Malachi lifted his voice in one final warning in the, in the Old Testament was, as it was closed. The last words of the last book of the Old Testament is closed with a dreadful last word. Do you know what that word is? Malachi chapter 4 verse 6 ends with the sad words, Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Period. End. Hundreds of years of silence. This, that is the background for the message. Our text is found in verse 6. It is a plea. It is a prayer. It is the heart cry of the psalmist and the prayer of our heart today or should be the prayer of God's people today. Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in their stuff, in their prominence, in their entertainments, in their buildings, in their slick pastors, in their schemes and programs and our, their relevance to the world. Is that what it says? That thy people may rejoice in thee, in the Lord, in him and him alone. Show us thy mercy and grant us thy salvation. Revival and salvation go hand in hand. But erroneously, most people refer to conversions as revival. And it has been the custom of God's people in this land for the last hundred or so years to call meetings revivals, presumptuously. We're going to have a revival. 
and and say that that's what that series of meetings with a preacher preaching and maybe if there's some movement or some praying or some people do something or, or convert usually a revival is only looked at as if a certain number of people made a profession of faith and that's what people call revival nothing could be further from the truth in the scriptures of what a revival is the day of pentecost with 3000 plus conversions is not revival that's a supernatural work of god in converting souls but what we read about here with this remnant with with such a job to do and no resources to do it a dark bleakness of the hour crying out to God without revive us again. Yes, revival and salvation go hand in hand, but revival is that mighty work of the Spirit brought about in the soul of man, totally transforming every area of his life. Reformation changes the outward. And it's just that. There's some outward changes. Often we're encouraged by outward changes because people are better than they were or they might not be being as mean as they were and and uh, but reformation only goes so far. I'm not saying it's not important, but make no mistake about it. Reformation is not necessarily true revival. Reformation is just that. It's a change of some kind. It may last for a while, and and then it, it, it ends at some point. But true revival changes the inward. Reformation changes the outward. Revival changes the inward. And I will submit to you, if the inward is truly changed, the outward manifestation of it will be seen. The need for revival comes from from neglect. Why are we in need for revival? I'll tell you. I looked out the other day at my wife's herb garden that I planted earlier, and it was a mess. It was embarrassing. If anybody looked at my backyard and seen it, I would have been, it it was a pitiful, absolute mess. Much ado about nothing. And to top it all off, a gourd of a weed started growing, in the, a vine started growing in the middle of it and took over the whole thing. So I did, for time and effort, I just hadn't been able to get to it. And so one day I just went out there and said, I've got to either rip this whole thing up and do away with it so it's not just an embarrassment or weed it out. And guess what I found? Do you know what that gourd was? What that vine was? It was full of watermelons. Watermelons all over the, the herb garden. Go figure. So I had to discern, do we have watermelons or do we have herbs? Guess what I voted for? We got watermelons and we have herbs. Weeded it out, pulled it out, got all the weeds out, back-breaking, the kind of weeding you can only do with your hands. A weed eater couldn't do it. Nobody, you know, it was... And it, why is it that weeds are... They're, de- they're determined to be there, aren't they? You have to break your hands to, to get them out. Weeded it all out and made it look like what it should look like. Neglect. A building neglected is a pitiful thing, isn't it? A garden neglected is a pitiful thing. But far worse than that, a heart neglected is a pitiful, ugly, sordid thing. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? The neglect of God's salvation and God's word was the source of all, and is the source of all personal and national problems. 
It is the same. It was for Israel. It is the same for the church today. It is that is what we are lacking, what we are in dire need of. And so that, my friends, is the introduction. I want to point out to you tonight to whom the question is addressed. It's a simple outline here, but I hope you'll remember it and take it to your personal, private, secret place. Who is he talking to? Who is addressed? It is a question that only God can answer. Wilt thou not revive us again? What is the next? O Lord, he who first gave life is the only one who can restore life. He who takes life alone can resurrect it. No human instrument can revive us again. No human program, no human scheme. It did not bring us salvation, and it will not bring us revival. It will not. He that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ, the Scripture tells us. Our salvation from beginning to end is all from the Lord's own hand. And it is the Lord who can send revival to these poor, pitiful, wretched, parched, souls, this remnant of people. Don't you feel sorry for them? What a job they have. How desolate it seems. It is a spiritual work, not a physical one. When one needs medical attention, the paramedics are called in. The wealthy Babylonians couldn't revive the remnant. What could they do? Not even coming home and not just coming back to Jerusalem revived them. Some people think if we could just get to this place, if we could just get to this place, to this meeting, to this speaker, to this thing, to this event, then revival will come. But I will tell you, just the remnant going back to Jerusalem, that didn't build the the walls, didn't build the temple, didn't didn't stamp out worldliness. Just being on the, the group that says, I'll go back, before you pat them on the back and say, what a... What a wonderful thing it is to give up the luxuries and the pleasures of Babylon. It seems so warped to even say that, doesn't it, after 70 years, and come back. Oh, you pioneers. Oh, you noble people. Not even coming home and reentering the the homeland physically brought revival. Just walking in this door didn't bring revival. Just going to a meeting does not bring revival. No, only heart-searching soul-searching cries to the Creator God of the universe to turn us and revive us. Not only do I want you to notice to whom this is addressed, I want you to know that the source, the fount of every blessing is our God. You must go to Him for everything. I not only want to point out to whom the prayer is addressed, but I also want to point out that Revival comes from God alone. It is a supernatural, sovereign work of God alone. That's why we we must say, as James tells us, if the Lord will, if the Lord be pleased, we hope in this meeting, we trust in this meeting, in this this conference, this this evangelistic outreach, the the time of the preaching of the Word of God. We trust, we we pray, we ask the Lord to bless us with revival, knowing the whole time it must it is only and sovereignly a gift from His hand alone. In the midst of the ruin and the rubble of seventy years ago, it seems like an impossible task to revive it all. Can you can you imagine ruins seventy years worth of ruins? 
we had a, a friend, a family friend, who uh, their family had a, a an antebellum home in in Georgia, and after for years and years, from the time of the the, the, the Civil War until this was in like the 30s or 40s. It had been used as a, uh, this once glorious, beautiful home had just been used as a hay barn. I mean, with the Doric columns on it and all of it. Each room in the house was 19 by 19 feet square. Why 19? I don't know. Can you imagine a place like that? Center hall down the middle of it. And the, the heirs of it, with nothing, decided to restore it and turn a hay barn back into the, the glorious splendor-filled place that it once was. And I remember them uh, recanting, uh, retelling how, how, what back-breaking, horrible years of work that it took to do that. Revival after 70 years is something only God can do. It's been a long time since the first and second awakenings in our nation. Most people, in the sound of my voice, only know revival from the scriptures or from history books. I've read with wonder and rapt attention the, the biographies of, of Jonathan Edwards and uh, George Whitfield and the sovereign moving of the Lord. We, one Sunday night, remember several years ago, played Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. We listened to that message that sparked the great awakening. Only God could take a message like that. Only God can take his word. The holy inspired word of God still has to be welded by the spirit. The holy word of God, the sword of the spirit must be welded before it can do surgery on the heart. Only God could have brought the remnant back home. Only God could have forgiven and delivered them from their insatiable lust and idolatry. Only God could revive the glow of his former glory in them so that once again their lights would brightly shine before men and and God could be glorified. Isn't that what we desire as God's people? That our lights would so shine that before men that God would see our good works, and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Only God can rebuild a life out of ashes and take a dry, parched soul and revive it. But He can and He will do it. Look in verse 9. Surely His salvation is nigh to them that fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth. Yea, verse 12, Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good. Righteousness shall go before Him, and He shall set us in the way of His steps. What faith the psalmist has. What courage he's taking. Humanly speaking, he has no right to talk like that. But Lord, You will do it. You can do it. And You will do it. Thirdly, I want you to notice the confidence of this prayer. 1 John 5, verse 14 says, And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything, what? Blank check? No. According to His will, He heareth us. Isn't that a glorious thing to know? If we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. Could it not be God's will to revive His people? 
and to use us greatly for his glory in these latter days. Oh, surely God would send a revival, another revival before he comes again or before he turns us over to absolute desolation. Lord, you can revive us again. We aren't so deep in the mire of sin and self that you can't lift us out. We aren't so dead that you can't make us alive. Wilt thou not revive us again? We can't revive ourselves, can we? We didn't save ourselves, and we cannot revive ourselves, but you can, Lord. You can turn us. You can wean us from this world. You can make those things that we cherish become a loathsome things to us. You can make us turn from our idols and not find pleasure in them. Lord, one touch from your hand, one breath from you, one moving among his people where the walls of sin are broken and melted to to, to just ashes. God can do that. Do you believe that? Linares Baptist Church, do you believe that? Let's cry out, Lord, you can revive us. We believe it. We look for it. We pray for it. Please do it, Lord. In our generation, we see here earnest pleading. This is one of the most pleading prayers in the Psalms. A holy urging of God to make bare His arm and to move among His people. I believe if a handful of our congregation would earnestly prevail in prayer over this very matter and cry out to God for a true Holy Spirit-led revival, we would see Him work in our midst. But the problem is most people don't really want it. Don't have time for it. We are seeing him at work. I praise the Lord for the things that we see. Though the mercy drops around us are falling, we're pleading for showers of blessing, aren't we? Like Jacob of old, we need to wrestle with God, with the angel of the covenant, crying, I will not let thee go till thou bless me. We will not let thee go here at Glen Iris Baptist Church until we see you. Refresh your people. Renew your people. Revive us again. We may be in a bad case. but We aren't any worse off than the churches were a hundred years ago. In fact, it's been so many years since we've seen a true moving of the Lord. God heard their cries. He heard their prayers and he will hear us if we prevail in prayer. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. A righteous people availeth much. We are the Lord's people. We believe Him. We take Him at His word. Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice? God is, not, is most glorified when His people rejoice in Him. When prayer that only He can answer comes to pass. When hard-headed cases are saved and, and delivered. When, when restitution is made and relationships are restored, these are the after effects of genuine revival. When broken homes are rebuilt, when marriages that could not be put back together, God does. When the chains and bondage of sin are broken in people's lives. When God's people have revival of faithfulness and service. And pastor, what does it need to be done? Let us get with it. Let's, let's rebuild the walls that are broken and revival of true spiritual worship. 
where God and God alone is all we desire, and the singing of His praise, and hearing the reading of His Word, and the preaching of His Word, simplicity of worship. Lord, just You and us, Your prescription, not what we want, but what You want to do in our midst. We'll have something to rejoice about, won't we? In closing, I want to point out to you something that we've overlooked. You may not have, but I did not read it, and so I need to point it out to you before we leave this portion of Scripture. You could read this psalm a thousand times and miss it. Right under the number, you'll find a superscription. It's an interesting one. What does it say? Look at your Bible. What does it say? To the chief musician, a psalm for the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah? Do you remember Korah? What on earth does that mean? A psalm to the sons of Korah. Numbers 26, and we'll not turn there, but I would encourage you to turn back and read that portion of Scripture. What a sobering, hair-raising chapter is Numbers chapter 26. There in verses 9 through 11, we'll remember that Dathan and Abiram, along with Korah, rebelled against Moses and the Lord. The earth opened up, the Bible tells us, and swallowed Dathan and Abiram, and their sons perished with them. Korah perished too. But the Holy Spirit records for us in Numbers 26, verse 11, these words, Notwithstanding, the children of Korah died not. Now, Nathan, Dathan, and Abiram and their sons swallowed up. Korah swallowed up. Open rebellion. God showed them who was on the throne. Notwithstanding, the sons of Korah died not. I don't know about you, but when I'm reading my Bible and I read something like that, I say, why? Why not? Why didn't they die? Why didn't they get swallowed up? I cannot tell you why. I don't know. Perhaps it's because they would not take part in their father's rebellion. They, like wise sons, may have seen their father acting a fool and said, I'll have a, not a part of that. There is a God in heaven. And you young people, just because your parents sin, don't mean you have to. Daddy can act a fool, but you don't have to act a fool. Korah's sons evidently said, I don't want any of that. There is a God in heaven and we've seen him at work and we're not going to join in with this debacle. I don't know. All I do know is they did not die. Didn't the Holy Spirit tell us that? And so if they did not die, they did not do something worthy to be swallowed up like their father and the other men and their sons. I'll tell you one thing. What I do know, and I'm very simple... You won't have to get a lexicon or concordance out to listen to me. They escape the horrible judgment of the Lord. That we know, don't we? That's all we need to know. And here, fast forward to the Psalms, we have a psalm dedicated to these boys. A psalm for the sons of Korah. I can see why they became leaders in the choir, can't you? These whose fathers sinned high-handedly 
became pillars in the church. Pillars in Israel. Send this song to the sons of Korah, leaders, pillars among God's people. Spurgeon said, you'll sing your best. You sing, will sing your best who wonder most at your salvation. Did you get that? You will sing best who wonder most at your salvation. I'll tell you this. I'll bet, and bet may not be the right word to use, but I'll bet the sons of Korah wondered more than anyone why they weren't swallowed up either. It came so close, didn't it? God would be just if he swallowed us all up right now. We love our luxury. We love our ways, our high-handed stubbornness and rebellion. But we're here. And we have his word. And we have this precept, this prescription here before us. Turn us, O Lord, and we'll be turned. Do you believe that? I believe it with all my heart. Are you willing to ask him, Lord, do whatever it takes to turn me. I'm not even turned yet. Lord, my heart is cold. I have idols in my heart. I have high-handedly sinned against you. I have sinned presumptuously. But I'm your child. I know that. Turn me. Can we pray that as a church? Turn us, Lord. Whatever it takes here. This blessed church. I I feel like sometimes in the book of Revelation, you have a name. You can't mention our name anywhere in the city that people will know. But what's a name? What's a history? What's a used to do? Once upon a time. The Lord has allowed us to be in the kingdom for such a time as this. He's on his throne. And he's given us a space of repentance. Shouldn't we say, Lord, bring us to that. Turn us. Turn us and we shall be turned. Lord, whatever it takes to turn us and and make us a holy people, desirous of of doing the first works. Of working it all. Lord, you're so gracious to us. Do what you alone can do. You can see no reason for it except that the sovereign goodness of the Lord has brought you to this hour. Why are you here? All you can do is ascribe it to the glory of God. Why do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? He brought me here. And so you will have sweet voices tuned with gratitude to praise the Lord. Forgiven is enough to make us sing throughout all of eternity. It should be enough to cause us to repent And to cry out to God, revive us again. Turn us and revive us again. May the Lord bless us and help his people.